Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 17th, 2010, and my guest is Daniel Pink. His latest book is Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. Dan, welcome back to Econ Talk. Uh, it's, it's great to be here once again, Russ. Now, your book argues that we have the wrong models of motivation in how we understand uh, business and education. Explain what you think uh, has changed in uh, in motivation and, and what we ought to do about it. Well, I went back and looked at about 50 years of research uh, in behavioral science, uh, mostly psychology, and then uh, in recent years a little bit of economics. And uh, what it says, uh, at least the way I read the research fairly clearly, is that uh, the classic set of motivators that we use inside of businesses, uh, but also I, I think in schools and in our families, uh, what I call if-then motivators. If you do this, then you get that. Uh, they work pretty well for certain kinds of things. They work pretty well for relatively sim- simple, straightforward, uh, algorithmic sort of uh, uh, of work. Uh, work where you're turning the same screw the same way on an assembly line or stuffing envelopes or adding up columns of figures in a white-collar office. Um, the evidence is pretty clear. They, they get you to focus. They, they do reasonably well. Um, the trouble is, is that for uh, work that requires uh, greater... Uh, complexity, greater creativity, uh, greater conceptual thinking, uh, there's a fair amount of evidence that says that those kinds of motivators, again, the if-then motivators, um, often don't work very well and can sometimes backfire. And um, my contention is that, is that m- most work in advanced economies is becoming less routine and algorithmic because that kind of work you can send overseas or automate it. Um, and that, uh, as a result, we have this kind of mismatch, that we're using essentially a motivational operating system, a set of assumptions and protocols uh, that's really made for 20th century work, these if-then motivators, and applying them to 21st century work. And uh, there's, we, have incompatib- we have compatibility problems. And my suggestion is, if we, again, looking at the research, that we upgrade to a different approach to motivation, uh, one that is far less reliant on if-then rewards, not on all rewards, but on a certain kind of reward, uh, and that prizes uh, other sorts of uh, motivators, such as autonomy, uh, mastery, and a sense of purpose. Yeah, certainly those last three. Let's talk about those uh, in a little more detail uh, before we move on in more depth to looking at the uh, more detail about the, the form of motivation that works and what doesn't work. Uh, talk about those autonomy, mastery, and the third one is purpose. Purpose. Go ahead. Well, I mean, what it shows, it, 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 I mean, I think what the research shows, again, as, as I read it, is, again, I, I don't want this to seem like it's a screed against rewards of all kinds and, and a cry for everyone to do volunteer work and never be remunerated. That's not the point at all. The, uh, the point is that uh, if, if you look at the research, it shows, I, I think pretty clearly, that you've got to pay people enough, uh, that if you don't pay people enough, uh, you're not going to get motivation. Uh, but once you pay people enough, and I would argue pay people more than enough, uh, additional units of money have relatively little impact on additional units of performance or additional units of satisfaction. What seems to matter more 
are these other elements, uh, autonomy. Uh, autonomy is essentially self-direction. And if you look at management uh, as it's, you know, we have this sort of misplaced notion of management. We think of it as something that emanated from nature or that was delivered to us from God. Uh, when in fact it's just something that some guy invented in the 1850s. And it's a te- Gary Hamill has said this, it's a technology. Uh, it's a technology really for getting compliance. That's what it's for. And even if you sand off the rough edges, it, that's what the goal of management essentially is. Uh, my belief is that today you don't want compliance, you want um, engagement. And the way that people engage, uh, people engage autonomously. People don't engage through coercion or monitoring. They engage through self-direction. And that requires uh, providing people uh, enormous amounts of autonomy over their time, over their, te- over their time at work, over their task at work, over their technique, uh, and even over their team. And there's some, I hope we can talk about them later, some really cool and interesting examples of companies around the world taking, what I, taking this very different approach to uh, motivation through greater amounts of autonomy. That's one thing. Uh, mastery. Uh, mastery is our desire to get better at stuff because we like to get better at stuff. Um, this is you know, why people play musical instruments on the weekend. Um, that seems to be, in some sense, um, at least it, it seems to be something of irrational behavior. It, no, it's, it's, just, it's an undeniable deep source of satisfaction, whether it's musical instruments, playing chess, crossword puzzles, climbing, rock climbing. I mean, it's just it's running. Hard, but here's the thing. Here's what I find interesting about it. It, it, you know, it doesn't make people any money. And it, I, I don't well, think it depends. It depends what you're mastering. <laughs> well, let's take let's take you know playing you know most amateur musicians by the nature of being amateurs, people practicing piano on the weekend or playing chess on the weekend, aren't going to make a lot of money out of it. I mean, it's a as a as a rational calculation of how that you part, make yeah. money. It's it's probably not a they're better off doing something else. Um, and it also you know I mean it's a curious question about whether it has any kind of biological explanation, um, but. You know, at least superficially, playing a musical instrument, playing the bassoon on the weekend, or playing chess on the weekend, isn't necessarily the optimal way to sate your hunger, slake your thirst, yeah. um, get your genes into the next generation. Yeah, there's something else going on there. I agree. And, and so, um, um, but I would argue it's deeply innate within most people. I agree. So it's hard to understand. I, it, there isn't an obvious survival benefit, but presumably it may have had some survival benefit in the past that we don't know about. I think that's very plausible. Not the bassoon part, no. Uh, no, I, I actually think that I, I actually think that the evolutionary argument is more powerful than the economic argument. Yeah. Um, and that now the other, on the other hand, you know, and I'm a, you know you're, you're talking to someone who you know has a Charles Darwin doll in his office. Okay, so I'm a you know I I'm a I, I am very comfortable with these evolutionary explanations. The trouble sometimes is that they're you know, they can be a little bit too true, a little bit too neat. Yeah, that I is, agree. you can, you know, gerrymander them to explain just about anything. But regardless, the point is, is that people do it. If we look at it just, you know, in a slightly less, um, you know, we're going to find the answer to this. Uh, you know, people do it because they like it, because yep. they get better at it. And that making it. progress is inherently satisfying. There's also some very interesting research by Teresa Amabile that's not in the book. Teresa Amabile, who's a business school professor at Harvard, uh, that showed that the single most motivating thing at work was a sense of making progress. Um, and so, um, you know, mastery and making progress is inherently motivating. And finally, uh, there's a sense of purpose. That is, people um, uh, tend to perform better when they do what they do in the service of something larger than themselves, or at least when they see 
how it contributes to a larger whole. And there's actually some other new research that's not in the book. Happy to talk about it by a fellow at uh, Wharton named Adam Grant, showing that if you sort of introduce uh, purpose and context uh, to a task, that people perform better on it. In the you know even in the absence of any kind of economic, purely economic incentive. No doubt about it. So, uh, so I, so again, I think autonomy, mastery, and purpose are more robust building blocks for true enduring motivation, particularly for the complicated conceptual uh, creative tasks. Now that said, um, you know, that that said, it doesn't mean that all rewards are bad. In fact, I actually try to divvy, divide up the categories to something that I might call that, that you call a now that reward, that is a little bit more unexpected, uh, a little less. Uh, much less contingent, and I think that those kinds of war- those kinds of rewards um, are less disruptive of a lot of the complicated conceptual uh, uh, creative work that I think that the purely contingent carrot and sticks can disrupt. Well, to my surprise, though, you you called the chapter about when it does work the special circumstances. Uh, as an economist, we tend to we tend to like incentives, so the book, to some extent, is uh, a challenge to conventional economic thinking. To some extent, I mean, you know, I mean, to, I, I think to some extent. I mean, it wasn't meant, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm not an economist. I'm actually, I, I think it's a, a challenge to conventional business practices um, in in many cases. Uh, but you know, when I, you know, again, and this is this is, it's a very easy straw man to erect and, and knock down. Um, won't stop me from doing it. There you uh, go. Which is that <laughs> you know this idea that. And again, you know, when I took economics, you know, the idea was that at our core we are rational calculators of our economic self-interest, and we make decisions based on that. Um, and it turns out that, and I know you're skeptical of some of the research in behavioral economics, uh, that human beings aren't as uniformly rational um, as conventional well, economic theory would make us out to be. I agree with that, and I think we'll talk in more detail about some of the research. It's certainly true, and said it many times here on the program, we care about a lot more than just money. It's also certainly true that the introduction of money into a non-monetary context uh, can be uh, jarring and, and counterproductive. Right. And as you argue in the book, a lot of the – it's not just that these monetary incentives are ineffective. Sometimes they're actually counterproductive, which is surprising and, and quite interesting. And I think sometimes it's true, and I like, hope we can talk about when, when those, those are the case. But you know, I think the real issue here, part of it is when economists talk about motivation, they, they use this little phrase, which I f- find unhelpful to non-economists, but economists all understand what it means, and mm-hmm. that, that phrase is at the margin. And what we usually mean by that is, for example, talking about motivation, well, we're motivated by lots of things, mm-hmm. money, pride. Uh, Adam Smith understood this well in the theory sure. of moral sentiments. Absolutely. Um, we care about what others think of us. We care about our reputation. Uh, as you say, we care about a lot of subtle and, and really glorious things, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Those are extremely important. Uh, no one wants to turn a crank uh, for a great deal of money and, and if there's nothing on the other side of the crank. Uh, you know, If you're desperately hungry, you might. Right. But uh, if there's nothing on the other side of the crank, you're cranking uh, – there's a crank on the wall and somebody pays you to – Crank it, and you crank it for years, and then you go on the other side of the wall, and you find out it's not attached to anything. No one would say, "Oh, well, he got the money anyway; he doesn't Absolutely. care." So those, you know, those are all important. The question is at the margin. That is, given a certain level of autonomy, mastery, and and purpose, if you then add money to it, 
Does that enhance it at the margin? That is, does a little more money make you try a little bit harder, or does it become counterproductive? Because, again, I don't think the straw man part of this, these kind of arguments for me is the idea that says, oh, you just give people a bunch of money if they do their job and you just leave them alone. That's all you have to do. The money takes care of it. It's all incentives. That, that's bad management. It's the wrong way to run a company. I don't think many com- people run their company that way. The question is, how do you balance that delicate mix of autonomy, mastery, purpose, and money? Yeah. Because they all matter. Uh, I think they absolutely do matter, and I think that the that the, that the way you do it, I, I, I think that in some ways, and this is this is, this harkens back a little bit to the work of uh, of Hertzberg fifty years ago, and the idea that some kinds of motivators are hygienic in a way, and that what does that mean? Well, it means basically that if you don't pay people enough, you're not going to get motivation. Uh, um, that is, you have to get. It has to sort of set a standard of uh, hygiene. But whether hygiene is hmm. a hygiene as as fairness, yeah, hygiene. The nineteen fifties word yeah. use of it. Well, you give the example, and I think it's it's a very good example of the dictator game, right? If you and I are dividing ten dollars, yeah. and I say to you, um, I, we're I get to divide, you get to veto, we're okay. So I give you two, and I keep eight. Well, you might say um, no, even though you're going to lose. Right. Lose both the two dollars, and and the, for the thrill of giving me zero for my arrogance, <laughs> you might be willing to do that, and, mm-hmm. and that and that surprised some economists. I think it's important to keep those in mind. The example you open with, which is phenomenal, which is Wikipedia uh, outperformed Encarta, which would be have been unexpected. Uh, economists would have said, "No, the people are being paid to do this; they're going to do a better job." So, it's, and, and it's in some ways, in some ways, you know, almost theoretically impossible. I mean, if I had gone to my, I, I took I took my first economics course in 1983 with a professor at Northwestern University named Mary Alice Shulman, who was a terrific teacher. And if I had gone to her in 1983 and said, "Hey, let me run this business model past you," uh, you know, a bunch of people who don't know each other get together um, and decide to do you know do do work for free, uh, and it will beat, it will triumph over something. Created with the proper incentives by a well-funded, publicly held corporation. Profit maximizing. She would say, "No, right? I'm sorry. It'd be I like agree. going to my physics professor and saying, uh, you know, I'm going to throw a ball at the second-story window, and instead of it dropping to the ground, it's going to fl- float into the air." Now, I agree, and I think <clears throat> when we look at that, I think we look, we're we're seeing the power of of what I think of as play. It's the mix of autonomy. Mm-hmm. It's the mix of autonomy with mastery and purpose. Mm-hmm. We do lots of things for, for no money, right? It's what was surprising, I think, to economists, or would have been if you'd got on record with them, is that they wouldn't have thought of that as play in 1983. Interesting, but it uh-huh. is play for most. That's why you know we, you and I blog for free. Yeah, right? it's fun. We, it has some Im- implicit some financial return down the road, maybe. Maybe, but yeah. it's it's tenuous. And if we were purely rational calculators, we could. You know, you, you, we could probably come up with a, a way to say, okay, what is the net present value of this blogging that I'm doing? Yeah, it looks like a loser. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I might as well go, uh, you know, uh, three, you know, three blocks away to Chick Fil A and work there. Yeah. Well, I want to get back to the point you just made yeah. about Hertzberg. I'm sorry, I derailed us. Um, and you use this phrase a lot in the book. You say, well, you know, the the pay has to be what 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 an economist would call market based. You have to get a decent yeah. pay relative to your alternatives. 
Uh, although, of course, a lot of really fun jobs pay less than that because they're really fun. But in general, there's some level of, of basic compensation. If you don't meet, you're not going to get good – you're going to get bitterness and resentment. That's why I brought up the dictator game. Right. So – but here's my question. After you've done that, do you not believe that effort and shirking are affected by how much people are paid? Do you think there's – are you against merit pay? Do you think everyone should make the same at that level of healthy amount, whatever that is, hygienic amount? No. Um, because I think that the there there have to be measures. Uh, there have to be measures. There have to be accountability measures. And the fact that um, everybody should be treated well doesn't mean the fact means that everybody has to be treated the same. And you know what I've seen is that, especially in the workplaces, that people are exquisitely attuned to the norm of, of, of fairness. It is more fair for someone who is a top producer. Uh, someone who is contributing more to the organization, to, uh, contributing a lot to the organization, to make more than someone who isn't. Um, my argument is that if you think that you can simply say, whoever comes up with a great idea here gets $5,000, and that that's going to lead to better performance, I think that part is mistaken. I agree with that. I don't think that's... And, you know, in the market, common. you know, and, and there is, there, I mean, there is, it's interesting. I think that there is, there is a market, there is a market mechanism here in that um, our norm of fairness is determined by, um, you know, what someone in a similar situation, sort of, you know, with my level of experience, my level of contribution, my level of ability would be making at a comparable place. I think that's the standard that people use. And if you violate that norm, I think that you're in, I think that you're in big trouble. Okay. I mean, I found it interesting. I didn't write very much about it. I wish I would have. Is the, is the, is the research that shows... That these high-performing companies are pay more than the market-clearing wage. That is, that what they're what they're doing in some sense to recast it in in very much layman's term is that they are um, paying people enough so that they're not focused on the money and they're focused on the work. Yeah, of course. There's another interpretation, which is the, the threat of firing, uh, the threat of losing your job, is a motivator, and by overpaying, you uh, use that carrot and stick rather than an explicit. Uh, contractual one. You just say if you don't, so the pain of the pain of loss is greater. Yeah, yeah. A, I think it's both. I, I think that's. A, I mean, that is a very plausible. I mean, truly, that's a very plausible explanation because if you look at the research on loss aversion, it's. I find it pretty persuasive. Yeah, I think. I think it's probably a little of both, though. And I think. Uh, I think you're right. Having just spent some time in Silicon Valley, uh, that culture of both compensation, both monetary and non-monetary compensation. And uh, the amount of flexibility that employees have, the amount of autonomy, I think is very high there. Um, I was told, I don't know if this is true, that if you have a business in Palo Alto with more than three employees, you have to provide a shower <laughs> for workers. Uh, and that's because they give them a chance to go biking during the middle of the day or uh. <laughs> running or whatever. Isn't that amazing? Sounds like an urban legend, but it's... It, I think it's... Well, the person who told me is pretty reliable. I'll wow, check right. it. I'll I, check I, it. That's, that's quite remarkable, actually. <laughs> I'll check it before when we put Quite remarkable. Um, <clears throat> that's consistent with your story, right? But let's go back... But let's go back... I mean, let me, let's go back directly to your point, which is... Not, which is or your, your question, really, which is, which is on the margin. And, you know, does a little bit more money on the margin uh, improve performance? And I think that the evidence is very unclear there. Um, uh, it depends on, it, it, somehow it depends on how the money is, is distributed. I, I think that if you offer people 
um, I, I mean, I, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a. There's, there's a, there's something of a, of a sweet spot. So it depends on how much money. So if you That's say, right. you know, if you do a little bit better by some kind of metric, I'll give you a ten dollar bonus at the end of the month. That is obviously not going to have any kind of effect. It might even have a negative effect. Um, if if you say to someone, if you hit a, your your numbers at this at the end of the month, I'll give you a hundred thousand dollar bonus. I think that's very motivating. You bet. Um, I think it's extraordinarily motivating. I think that for simple tasks, people are gonna people are gonna do. I think for many tasks in the short term, people are going to um, people are going to rise to the occasion and figure out any way possible to hit their number, even if it requires taking the low road. Right, and they do sometimes, of course. So they do it, and they'll take the low road not just in legal ways, but just to hurt the company. Uh, someone I was talking to about your book, uh, who's in sales, told me that. Yeah, sales bonus he finds very motivating. He works about eighty hours a week, and he said he'd rather work forty. Uh, but he said, of course, it it leads to people reporting things sometimes that aren't true, which is why his company has a very good auditing uh, process. He says that probably they spend more on than than some of their uh, helping their employees. But uh, it's, so it, it's a mix. But I mean, it, but it was, what's interesting about that is that it nominally improves for, for performance, but it also exacts the cost. I mean, if they're spending right. extra money to police the system. That's nothing's free. You know, then you, you know, then it, then its benefit obviously is, then its benefit obviously is is less. Yep. The other thing for 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 really kind of conceptual tasks, um, you know, more create, you know, sort of things that are purely conceptual. Come up with anybody who comes up with a new product idea that works in the marketplace gets a hundred thousand dollars. I think that it is motivating in the sense that it will produce activity that people will respond to that. I don't think there's any question about that. I think that they'll they'll log a lot of hours. Uh, I'm not convinced at all that they're going to do anything more creative, more conceptually brilliant. But, Dan, uh, that is the way our economy actually works, right? Our economy works by if you do – forget within a company. If you're self-employed and you come up with a new product that's really successful, you get 100000 You get more than 100000 and it really is pretty powerful. Right, but it generates look, a lot of bad ideas right? <laughs> and a lot of entrepreneurs who are overconfident about their product, but that's how it works. They don't do it out of love. Most of them, they do it out of love and money. Yeah, although I would think, I actually think that for successful entrepreneurs, the balance between love and money tilts more toward love, and that in many cases, money operates in a slightly different way. That is, money operates as a form of feedback yeah, on whether I agree. on whether on on whether they're doing that. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so if you you know uh, and you. If you look at say, um, my my view, this is, it's, it's hard to it's hard to prove. My view is that most entrepreneurs are not deeply greedy. Most successful entrepreneurs are not deeply greedy people. No, I agree. It's uh, to quote Bruce Yandel, who I quoted here before. He says, uh, "I love my job, but if they didn't pay me, I wouldn't show up on Monday morning." Now. There's some jobs we love enough, like blogging, we show up even though they don't pay at all. Mm-hmm. Other jobs that are less pleasant, they don't have to pay very much, but they've got to pay something like you say. They've got to pay that base rate. Uh, but I think for entrepreneurs, again, it's the it's the at-the-margin thing. I think – and I, you know, I've written about this in The Price of Everything. Uh, I think most people are in it for those deep, deep satisfactions that are not monetary. But the monetary is the signal. It's also the scorekeeper. You know, for you know, part of what we we're talking about earlier, the innate drives, are competitiveness to do something well and then do it better, and do it better than, than not just that I did before, but better than somebody else does. 
which is what all of sports is about. It's a lot of what entrepreneurship is although about. Although, if you look at, although I would argue that really that 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 if you look at great athletes, great athletes are. I think in some ways this notion of competition is a little. It, it, I, I think it's a little murkier. I think that if you look at great athletes, great athletes are very much motivated by the desire to do better than to do the best they can do, to, to do something yep. extraordinary. Mastery. And, and that often has the consequence of besting your opponent. Uh, but I, I would say that great athletes tend to be extraordinarily intrinsically motivating, and a lot of the rewards that they get are a consequence of that and that operate as a form of feedback on whether they're doing a good job. Think about, I mean, think about, I mean, let's, go, let's, let's, go, let's go back to the margins here for a second. Think about someone who takes a company public and um, you know, makes a lot of money um, and then goes and starts another company. I mean, the marginal value of, of you know, if they're multi-multi-millionaires or billionaires, the, the, the marginal value of, of a little bit more money isn't all that great. So why, do, the, they, why not, do they go and start another company? You tell me. I, I think they do it because it's, it's interesting. Because <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's, it's yeah. challenging. It's true, but they'd rather start a company that makes a lot of money than one that doesn't. Sure. For all kinds of reasons. Sure. I would too. Absolutely. Yeah, right? So I think it's both. That's all. It's both. Well, let's talk about the uh, some of the underlying research that you use in the book uh, to challenge this, this, the carrot and stick approach, the if-then if approach. There's been a lot of work done, and you go back quite a ways, some of which was neglected. Uh, give us a little quick survey of, of that academic history uh, and what some of the findings were. Well, I mean, it goes back, uh, you know, it goes back to the 1940s with a guy named Harry Harlow, um, who was, you know, essentially did an experiment where he was training monkeys to um, figure out how to solve a puzzle. And it was going to reward them with raisins. And lo and behold, they start playing with the puzzles, messing with it. You know, it goes back to your point about play. Uh, play you know, playing with the puzzle and figuring it out in the absence of any kind of of, um, of outside reward. And I, I think you know, he was one of the first people to say, obviously, primates of all kinds, we have a biological drive. We have this reward and punishment drive. We do respond to external incentives. That is unequivocally true, but maybe we also have this other drive out there where we do things because they're inherently interesting. And so he was the first person to sort of introduce this, but that was a very controversial um, uh, claim, in, especially in 1940s, 1950s psychology, which was all about, um, you know, rats and Skinner boxes. Yeah. And so he, you know, went another way, and he ended up being famous for other kinds of things. He ended up being controversial for some other kinds of things unrelated. Uh, and then, you know, in the late 1960s, another group of, of psychologists began picking this up, in particular a guy named Edward Deasy at the University of Rochester, um, who, you know, has, did a series of experiments that showed something, you know, very surprising, which showed that uh, introducing these kinds of external contingent rewards um, on something that people actually enjoy doing uh, can actually extinguish their interest in doing it. Uh, which that the idea that if you take something inherently interesting that people like to do and you layer money on top of it, that would have an additive effect. And what his research found is that actually no, it doesn't. It, it's almost like there's only room for 
you know, one or another. Now, he's since refined his theory a little bit to make it a little bit less black and white. Um, and so, you know, what you ha- you know, and so among a whole range of psychologists and then eventually a couple of sociologists and then eventually uh, a group of uh, economists, mostly in the behavioral economist camp, um, they began kind of challenging some of the orthodoxy about what motivates people. And to my mind, uh, bringing in a more three-dimensional view of human beings. And I think that three-dimensional hu- view of human beings is actually absent in many, kind, you know, many sorts of, of companies and to the company's detriment. Let's talk about that research first, and then we'll talk yeah. about some of the applications. Uh, I'm interested in the corporate stuff, but I'm also interested very much in the educational part because there's been some very – um, novel and controversial attempts to apply this kind of work to to education. Right, right, right. Um, but let's start. Let's talk about the research because what I found fascinating so about I know, you, I know you're skeptical of some of this research. So just you know, don't don't hold back. Talk to you know, express your skepticism. We'll talk about it. Yeah. The well, I have two types of skepticism. Uh, there's two types of one is the nature of the research, and the second is sometimes the interpretation. Okay. So, so let's. First, let's talk otherwise, about. Otherwise, otherwise, you're it's a great. Fan. No, I'm totally on. I'm totally. In, I'm in. I'm in. Um, the the first one, for example, which which you describe in some detail, is the study by Ariely and some of his colleagues uh, in India, yeah. and it was a very clever study because the advantage of doing it in a poor country is that the rewards can be fairly large without bankrupting the budget of the uh, the researchers. Right. So, talk about what they did, and then I'll give you my skepticism, and you can respond. Okay. Well, I mean, essentially, essentially, what they did is that they offered, um, and I, I thought it was actually a pretty ingenious uh, methodology. So, because so, it's basically let's 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 offer up rewards for performance that are that are meaningful. So, if you were to offer me, you know, I'm gonna I'll give you, then I'll give you, you know, five bucks to jump over the table. That's probably not sufficiently arousing for me. Yep. But if you were to say, give me, I'll give you five thousand dollars. Well, Start you know, think about then it. you have my attention. Five million. I'm really going to get your attention. Five, oh, <laughs> five. Yeah, five million. I'm. I'm. I'm going to. Yeah, you got it. So, um, uh, so what they did is they uh, they had people uh, do a series of of, uh, of tasks. Uh, some of them involving physical. Capabilities, some of them involving cognitive capabilities. So the physical thing, I think, was uh, throwing a ball through a hoop, something like that. And then the cognitive capabilities were—I don't remember specifically what they were—but it's sort of a, a range of cognitive tasks. Well, one was repeating a long number, a many-digit. I think it was nine. Yeah, a nine sort of memorization number. on one level, and then maybe somewhat more conceptually complicated tasks. Um, and what they found uh, pretty clearly is that when the tasks called for only mechanical, uh, oh, and, and then they offered they offered they had three different they offered three different levels of of, uh, of reward, uh, a small reward, a medium reward, and a large reward. And the small reward was something like still pretty big. It was yeah, a half yeah, the a day. Small reward was maybe I think the equivalent of two weeks' salary. No, I think the small one was like a half like a half a, a day's salary. Then it was two weeks, and the large reward was five months. Several months of salary. Yeah, it was right. massive compared to the right. other two. So five months. I think it was. Yeah, two. I think it was more than that. Anyway, two. It, it was small, medium, and large, but it, it it ratcheted up pretty significantly. So it was a meaningful amount. I mean, if you were to say, "I'm going to give you five months' salary for high performance," that gets anybody's yeah, attention sure. in any in any sort of country. Agreed. And what they what they found is that 
Um, when the task required, you know, me- uh, sort of mechanical skill, bonuses worked more or less as they expected. That the, you know, the higher the pay, the better the performance. But once you got to any kind of conceptual skill, um, uh, a higher reward often led to worse performance. And that, in, in there, and there was also evidence uh, that the um, uh, the the most incentivized people perform the worst of all. Which is very surprising, right? Right, and that was very cool. And and it wasn't just, you know, it was statistically significant. It was actually a pretty large difference in, if I remember, in in the in the performance. It wasn't just it was okay. It was worse, which would be surprising. It was dramatically worse. Yeah. So okay, so give me the the Roberts interpretation. Yeah. Of that. Well, now one way one way one way to one way to interpret that obviously is to say, and this is the way that Ariely and others interpreted it in part is that. Although I thought they were actually fairly cautious in over in, in over interpreting it, as I remember the the paper, which I haven't read for several months, but as I remember the paper, you know, and and said, you know, that the idea that higher rewards lead to better performance isn't uniformly true, and that in many cases it can work in the exact opposite fashion. So you're what the Roberts interpretation is. Well, I'm, here's why I'm skeptical. I'm not skeptical. Of, well, I don't know if the, if the I should be skeptical of the results. I'm skeptical of the interpretation. Yeah, right, of so. Here's the – well, I wouldn't just say, of course, because sometimes I always wonder whether these results were to be replicated. If you did it again interesting. Okay, and, they interesting didn't find, and they didn't find it, they wouldn't have published it. It wouldn't have been interesting. Right? If they, suppose they'd found – they tried three different tasks and, and some of them uh, – and they all worked the way, quote, conventional thinking would have suggested. The higher they paid, the better results they got. Well, you can't publish that paper, so they throw that result out. So you have to always be careful. I, I well, think. I think that's a problem. That's a that's a, a an alarm bell with academic research in general. Yeah, absolutely, that's, that's not, that's no, not no. only true in <laughs> economics. That's no, true no, no. in every field in no. medicine. Absolutely, it's a huge problem in research. It, uh, right. I mean, yeah. The the it'd be interesting to to check the hard drives and trash yeah. electronic trash bins. I want to follow them around. I want to say, okay, yeah, how many times I, I did you do it? <laughs> I, I am. I am absolutely. I'm. Absolutely with you on that, and you also see this. I, I don't mean to derail your. your no, that's point all right. Here, we'll come but, back. But I, I have seen this in terms of, with with friends of mine. I, I just remember this from you know twenty years ago when friends of mine were in graduate school, and and this is true in the you know I'm, I'm thinking about friends of mine in say bio, the biological sciences or chemistry or those sorts of things where you know they were working with you know they were working under the thumb of the great master and they were carrying out some of these experiments. And they knew that, you know, it, it, it was a, if they came up with results that weren't, exa- you know, so some, uh, a senior scientist or a senior researcher would, would assign three graduate students to carry out the same experiment. And then when one came back with the results that he didn't want, he would say, okay, whatever. Another came back with the results he didn't want, okay, whatever. And the one came back with the results he did want, all right, we're going to go with that. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it ended up actually affecting the careers of people. Yeah, no, it's a horrible problem. Yeah, anyway, so it's a bigger issue altogether. It's, but go ahead. It's a, it's a version of confirmation bias. It's, you know, it's called publication bias, but it, it's, yeah. uh, it's a huge problem. But let's put that to the side. Yeah. Um, what I found disappointing about that is that where I would expect rewards to be perverse and interesting would be in a case where effort mattered. So let me give you the contrast with what they did versus what I think would be more would have been more applicable. Now it, I'm a I'm a mediocre golfer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm one of the greatest golfers in the world who's golfed fewer than fifty times, but <clears throat> I'm a horrible golfer. Mm-hmm. But I can sink a ten foot putt every once in a while, mm-hmm. you know, maybe pretty often. Mm-hmm. But if you put me in front of a ten foot putt and said 
if you make this, I will give you $2 million. Or if you make – if you miss this, I will sever the hand of your child. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'd be very good at it. Uh, You know, that would induce – those large rewards or punishments would induce uh, fear. And fear, anxiety would make it more difficult for me to do the task. So if I'm trying to memorize a nine-digit number and I know that I can get five months' salary, uh, maybe I'll do worse than than if it's just a little pleasant uh, bonus. What I – you know, we come back to your earlier point. When you think about autonomy, I think it's great that workers are autonomous, but we know that autonomous workers often – Search surf the internet uh, for their own purposes. Uh, so too much autonomy, not so good uh, if it's not directed toward the goal of the company. And shirking is usually a problem, even in even in well-intentioned organizations, yeah, of course. nonprofits, people who are for fighting for a cause. Of course. So my my challenge to the Ariely study, your study, but you know the Ariely yeah. study, is that it's just it's not the right experiment. The right experiment would be something where you've got three months to work on something and you've got to trade off working hard versus not working hard. Mm-hmm. I think rewards are really important. Interesting. Uh, I think that's I think that's interesting. So let's 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 unpack that for a little bit. So yeah, go ahead. so the um so the 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 interpretation that, that you would you would put on that is that a reward of those high stakes uh well there are two, two a reward of I think you're making two points. The reward with with stakes that high um, is performance impairing because it induces anxiety. And I don't have a mechanism. It's not like I can get I can try harder to memorize a nine digit number. I either have a gift at it or I don't. I only have the fear part. If you gave me a chance to go do some research or to practice, yeah. uh, find a mnemonic to help me remember it, I. I bet well, I guess, the, I guess the two points are twin. One of them is that the size of the reward induces anxiety. The other one is that the the task itself is not particularly um, similar to the task that people actually do at work. That's the, that's which we, the better which, way to which say. Which is it. not a which are, where things are often not a one shot um, sink a putt or yeah. or you slice off your finger, but require uh, time collaboration. And some degree of uh, some degree of effort. Yeah. I think that's actually I think that's actually a fair point. I think one of the things though is that, and and forgive me because I can't think of the name of it, but there is this thing in social science, and forgive me, I just cannot Sorry. think of the name of it. Uh, it's essentially a it's essentially a curve that shows that um, certain kinds of stimulation, if there's not enough stimulation, people don't do anything, and if there's too much. Um, People get freaked out by yeah, being overstimulated, sure. and that there's a sweet spot along the curve. It's, uh, is it Yerkes Dodson? I don't know. Something like that. In any event, um, I, I mean, think I think that's, that's true. A, I think that's a. I think that's a. I think that's a reasonable. I think that's a reasonable point. But essentially, that's in some ways what I'm saying is that um, is that a, a situation where someone has three months to complete a project. I, I think that hiring the right people. And giving them the tools that they need and the freedom that they need to do a great job, and paying them a uh, a healthy salary so that they're focused on the task, not on how they can get the money, um, is a better management approach. Now, I think there's a I think there's a norm of of fairness if somebody does come up with something in a collaborative, long term way that ends up enriching the company. I think the norm of fairness says absolutely share the profits. 
but I think that the idea that I'm just skeptical of the claim that some, that you say, hey, if you come up with a great idea after these, if you come up with something, if you do this a great job over the next three months, I'll give you six months' salary. Is necessarily going to lead to better performance? I'm very skeptical of that claim. Well, and I, you know, let me agree with you to make sure I don't push my skepticism too far. Yeah. Nobody likes to feel like a like the mouse in the right. in the experiment. No one likes to feel like a serf who who serves the master at the master's. Uh, uh, benevolence, even when it's even when there's a lot of cash involved, you, mm-hmm. it takes a lot of the the fun out of the job. And you give a great example in the book of the ex post reward, the unexpected reward. The the employee comes up with a great new product or the new solution. You gave an example where it was small and then a small contribution. They got a nice lunch or something, and that's a non semi monetary reward. I think. Yeah. But but you're right. I think you know rewarding a, an employee unexpectedly with with any kind of whether it's praise or compensation in monetary forms, uh, after the fact, has the advantage of letting the bonus be adjustable, which also makes the work effort more open-ended as well. That's and I, a good point. Right. So I think uh, I, I, I'd be fascinated to know how Apple treats its top engineers. I suspect very good question. Yeah, I suspect the ones who make the largest contributions, to the extent it's knowable, sometimes it's not, which is a whole mm-hmm. separate issue, which is also, I think, relevant for your point about how people are treated. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, to the extent that, that it's knowable, who makes the largest contribution to the iPhone, the iPad, the uh, et cetera? I think I bet those folks get incre- they get a bonus, but it's just not written in stone in advance, which I think. Does tend to discourage productivity. Well, that's a very. I think that's a very, very interesting point uh, that I hadn't actually. I didn't write about it and I hadn't considered. Is the you know the open endedness ha- has some kind of advantage that if people um, if people know that it, you know if people if people know that um, the company treats people fairly and that good performance actually is rewarded and that and I don't think most people I don't think most people in in the workplace expect individuals to be treated exactly the same or to be paid exactly the same right and if you you see this in you see this in um, in professional sports where if you look at say I mean I you know my family are like the five of the 15 Washington Nationals fans in America good times are coming my friend oh heck yeah Bryce Harper Oh boy! I hope so. Feeling good about that. I hope so. Um, and but if you look at say you know professional baseball team, um, n- n- people don't get paid the same amount. And interestingly, and they know they know what someone else is getting paid. And while it's true that there are performance clauses in contracts, they're they're not common. The reward is basically your next contract. It's it's the. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although what's interesting, Russ, is is that there actually is, and I forgive me, I cannot think of who's done this. There is, there's a, and so to so take it with a grain of salt, because I'm going to paraphrase something that I can't quite remember. But I think that the one percent of it is that, um, uh, and it actually sort of supports your point about the power of incentives. Is um, is when people, baseball players, are in their the year before they become free agents. Yeah, sure. They actually post. Uh, better numbers, you know, once you control for other kinds of things. Yeah, they try harder, even though you wouldn't th- – you'd think – the part that's weird about sports, I'm always skeptical of this, you know, the, oh, you know, they've, the coach gave them a great talk and they tried harder. Yeah. They're, prof- they're professionals. Yeah. Aren't they trying as hard as they can? And, of course, the answer is – Not always. Not always. Yeah. The, you know, in basketball, in the NBA, it's, it's, it's 
it's a long season. Yeah. <laughs> Same with baseball, right? You, yeah, you, it's a longer season. Yeah. Um, and and, and the, the point is, is, that, is that in the year before free agency, controlling for other sorts of factors. I bet that's true. People did, people did a little bit better. But what's interesting is that, again, controlling for other things, their teams didn't do any better. Yeah, although that's hard to measure, but yeah. Yeah, so that, and, and so, you know, arguably, there's a, I mean, there's, I think there's an inherent murkiness here. because well, That's you, a great example, because it's possible they were just going for flashier forms of success to make their contract look better, but that assumes that the next general manager didn't realize that. And I think baseball's but, gotten I mean, a little do more they, but, I mean, but, but again, I mean, the next general manager is looking at the, you know, is looking at, say, the, you know, the, the aggregate numbers. They're not saying, um, um, they're not saying, God, I remember, you know, I, there, there's no statistical measure of, uh, of unwillingness to uh, advance a runner with a sacrifice. Well, it's not, with Manny Ramirez, there is. You know, he doesn't run him out. He won't run out of ground balls. But So I think that, you know, a lot of this, and it's, it's interesting about sort of the nature of human beings, and it goes back to the ultimatum game, is I have found, and again, I don't have a lot, of, I haven't looked at a lot of research on this, is that people are very, very well-tuned to fairness. Yeah, no and, doubt about it. And, and I think that's one reason, if you look at, say, public reaction to salaries and things, um, particularly executive salaries, is that people, you know, you look at somebody like a Bob Nardelli, I mean, at least, forgive me for naming names, but, you know, here, it's not fair. So if you're if you're what the CEO run? of a large company of a large public company and your company does really well in, at least in stock performance you get a lot of money I don't think most people have a problem with that Yeah I agree The problem is is that if you're the CEO of a publicly held company and you run your into run your company into the ground you make a lot of money Of course it's true of baseball players too it's a weird you know it's a weird thing and people do get mad about it of course They do get mad about it but uh, no right. one gets mad about Steve Jobs making a lot of money, or no. Jeff Bezos making a lot of money, or yeah. you know those folks, because it seems fair. They yeah. created something, they did something. I just think that you know what what I think is really interesting about people's reaction, especially to money and compensation, is how much the norm of fairness seems to be what prevails. Yeah, and no, I think it's very important. Um, and I suspect there's some cultural differences there about what's fair. That's well, I'm sure there is. I, I don't know for. I mean, that makes intuitive sense. But I, anyway, we go go on. I mean, I know you want to talk about some other research. Yeah, I want to talk well. about. I want to talk about that other one other piece of research, and then I want to get to the education and yeah. make sure we get to that. Um, there's a fascinating study which I found extremely interesting, and I like a lot of it. By the way, I'm not a total skeptic on this one, uh, which is the Israeli daycare uh, center uh, study, which I've which I've seen referenced in other contexts. Interestingly, hmm. so. In this, tell, tell, tell what happened in that. It's well, a great the gist example. of it was uh, you had this uh, group of Israeli daycare centers, and um, uh, they had a rule at the daycare center where parents had to pick up their kids by 4 p.m. If they didn't pick up their kid by 4 p.m., the caregiver had to stay late. And they noticed some parents, most parents were, were complying with the rule, but they noticed some parents were coming late. And so to deter them from showing up late, they imposed a fine, which makes perfect sense. You, you know, you want lesser sure. behavior, you, you deter yeah. it but with, with a punishment. And um, so they, they posted this sign that said, you know, there's a fine for coming late. Everybody knows the rule. If you show up past a certain time, you're going to get imposed. You, you have a fine being imposed on you. And it was a very modest fine. It was um, $3, I think. Yeah. Equivalent of $3. Just a few dollars. And uh, after the imposition of the fine, um, they noticed a, there was an increase in the number of parents coming late. So here you had this, this disincentive, this punishment, this fine for... 
showing up late, and it actually ended up doubling the incidence of lateness. The reason I like that, the reason I find it so fascinating, and it's such a good example, because it it took a situation where there was no monetary role being played right. and introduced one. And and one of the things I think your book makes one think about, which which I find fascinating, is that money is weird, mm. uh, especially when you go from no money to money. So mm. in that case, there was a Hayekian emergent cultural norm that said you shouldn't – it's not nice to come at 405, and it's really not nice to come at 420 because right. you impose costs on others against their will, and it's, exactly. it's mean. So most people don't do it, but there's a few people who aren't so nice, and they abuse it. They take advantage right. of it. They're, they free ride. You, you can call them um, – sometimes they enjoy it. They think, ah, you know, that sucker is waiting at 415 for me, and I get to go run my errand. Yeah, yeah. I'm um, getting a deal. So a lot of people think that way in life, mm. well, but were, not too many. Not too many. Which, which is what's great. Some of them, and some of them are people we call sociopaths, but go ahead. <laughs> some of them, they just made a mistake. They thought they were going to get there at four. Yeah, yeah. They're just not good at time, and we know a lot of people like that. Yeah, okay. Uh, we might be – either of us might be one of those people. So that is a fascinating thing. So there was a cost before the change in policy. The cost was shame, embarrassment. Although you inco- and you also inconvenience another person, and not just any person, but the person who was carrying take care your, your kids. kids. Yeah. So, you know, as you say, some are people are sociopaths. What we mean by that is they enjoy breaking the norm. Mm. They get pleasure from exploiting a person who expects them to do the right thing, and then mm. they don't do it. Uh, so when you change from that system to a system that says, if you violate the rules, three bucks, well, three bucks is cheap, maybe, relative to shame, and you say, oh, that's all it costs? Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to let me do it for $3? Uh, so it was interesting. I was talking to a friend about this. Again, I think it's a great, ex- interesting example. He said, well, in the daycare center I go to, it's, I take my kids to, it's, it's a dollar a minute. Mm-hmm. That's pretty effective. <laughs> now, you might say, some people might say it's, in that case, you, you won't be, people, people won't be showing up a half an hour late. Uh, but you still, even in that case, of course, you could get the you could get it increase. But then, if you made it five dollars a minute or twenty dollars a minute, there is some amount that would substitute for the shame. Of course, you might lose some customers too because they'd say, "I'm just not good at time. I don't like paying the fine." Right. So it's a, it's a great example. I think that you have, but I, I I mean I think that's right. I think that the three dollars or four dollars, whatever it was, um, um, you know, it might have been mispricing. However, I, I think the example is less. I, I love this. I love this study for a couple of reasons because we tend to think that if you punish behavior, you'll get less of it, and that just isn't universally true, as this study shows. However, I think the other thing that it shows is that, and, I, and you know, the point that these these folks are, are making is that if you take something uh, that is sort of operates in the in the moral realm, or uh, which I think this this did, and put a price on it. Um, you export it from the moral realm to the economic realm. That's not an inherently bad thing, but it 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 it, it, it abides by a very different set of I rules. Agree. Totally agree with that. And so it you know it becomes like buying a bag of Cheetos. You're buying time, and so you've extinguished all of the moral social responsibility for that. And it's just if you want more time, you just buy it. Um, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong by uh, about that. However, you know. I think if you if you if you impose let's say five dollars a minute for picking up your kid, I think that would deter people. 
However, I think it would exact other sorts of oh, costs. I, that's my, yeah, I agree, because I think some people would say this is too – it makes me too nervous. I can't handle I think it. it would have, you, I think you would have people exit, but I also right. think that you would have litigation. <laughs> I mean, I mean it. You're right because you got to have a stopwatch that's reliable. Yeah, you, I mean, yeah. Here's, I mean, imagine this. It's like yeah. okay, I got, I got, I got, I got three. Or you, what did you have? Four kids? I have four kids. Four kids. Okay, God, I got, God. I got three kids. So let's say it's five dollars a minute per kid, <laughs> and I pick up my kid, and you got, I got to pick up my kid at four o'clock. Four o two. Okay, yeah. my, I got to pick up my kid at four o'clock, and so it's five dollars a minute. Um, I show, I show up at four o one. All right, and so five dollars a minute, three kids, fifteen bucks. Okay, I go in there and they say, Mr. Pink, I'm sorry, you got you owe us fifteen bucks to pick to pick up your three kids. And I look at my watch and say, um, yeah. excuse me, my watch <laughs> says it's three fifty nine. Whose watch are we going to use to arbitrate this dispute? Which is exactly why uh, the the what I would call the textbook economics incentives of you know, three dollars a minute or or a, or a meter on the restaurant table. Uh, for for lingering over your meal, those are not the ways no. that effective businesses handle these problems. No. They use the upraised eyebrow, the disdainful look, and they use shame. And I agree with. And you're gonna. And I think that you're right, though. I think that the the the, the you know, if we're searching for okay, let's ha- what's the perfect solution to this problem? It doesn't exist, right? Because I think in the I think in the one case you're going to have the in the in the first case you're going to have the sociopaths who revel in inconveniencing other people or who smirk at the raised eyebrow because they know that they're inconveniencing someone. In the other scenario, I think what you're going to have is you need a much greater administrative apparatus Agreed. To, to, to deal with this. To, to take my call when it's, you know, when it's 3.55 and, and, and saying, hey, you know, a tree fell on the beltway. I've never been late before. This is an act of God. This is force majeure. You can't possibly right. charge, you know? Exactly. And, and I think that's what I love about this study is that it shows, okay, wait a second, this is complicated. Yeah, and I, li- I agree. And that's this why I like it, too. complicated. And, um, but, I, but I do, and, I, and in the title of the paper, if I'm not mistaken, I don't have it right in front of me, is a fine is a price. Which means you can buy if you want. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it also shows that in this particular scenario, the price wasn't high enough. Yeah. Or, but, but your point, I think, is, is, is really right, which is that if you made it higher, you might, have unintended consequences, and and again to push the Hayekian line, I think businesses use and families and social environments use all kinds of signals besides money, and sometimes money is the best, but not always. Sometimes other ways are better. Well, there's a very interesting. I mean, I think that you know the 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 uh, you know the Hayekian you know order will emerge. Um, principle is takes place with inside of companies too. I just I just happen to Absolutely. write about. I just happened to write about something very interesting. Uh, I thought it was interesting, which is about um, uh, Netflix and inside of its corporate headquarters. It doesn't have a vacation policy. Hmm. You can take as much vacation as you want anytime you want it. Fascinating. Now, obviously, you're going to have some people. Uh, you know, gonna, they're going to be one or two people who are going to be free riders, or who are going to be for you know, a while. <laughs> unless unless they get canned and yeah. uh, or, or or ostracized from the. But there isn't abuse within that culture. It isn't saying, I'm going to take out for six months and not do any work, because there is this emergent order and set of culture and values um, that has nothing to, do with, nothing to do with money. Oh, you know, in one way, that the modern workplace overwhelmingly, by dispensing with the time clock, mm-hmm. uh, has sort of made all of us autonomous that way, right? I mean, I'm lucky. I have a very extremely autonomous job as a professor. You're self-employed. Right. Uh, 
in a, in a sim, you have the similar level of autonomy. But but if you work at Google or Microsoft or GM, and not on the line, but in the in the, the white collar part, it, it work in enormous number of companies. You can get up and wander off and go run an errand, uh, and, unless you're expected for a conference call at, right. at 10 a.m. No one says, where's where's Bob? Yeah, although there is, I think there actually is more of that sort of vestigial time clockiness um, I know, outside of places like you know, Google or Microsoft. Yeah, uh, there's some. Yeah. Uh, but but is, the other part, of course, is that there's a tyranny potentially there. A culture can emerge in that situation where everybody's competing to show how loyal they are to the company by never taking a vacation day. Mm-hmm. So it'd be interesting to see how that – again, it, it, there's going to be an emergent result. I'm not sure whether it'd be two weeks a year, the occasional day. Interesting. Yeah, that'd be very – that'd be fascinating to – that'd be fascinating to see. M- my hunch on this yeah. is that um, – um, is that people would uh, look to see what the – like the CEO or mm-hmm. the sure. the very, very top people do. Yeah. And that the result, and if they were the first mover on that, that if the CEO took three weeks or something, then you'd have more people, you'd have people taking three weeks plus or minus something. Yeah, no, I think that's right. That's very cool. Let's get to the um, the educational applications because uh, my wife uh, teaches high school math and and she's she thinks a lot about this. And one of the voices in education that, as I mentioned in the beginning, is controversial – uh, is Alfie Cohn. So Alfie Cohn mm-hmm. has a book called Punished by Rewards. And several other books. Yeah, but the one that – that title is is yeah. a beautiful s- summary of, of his worldview, Punished by Rewards. Uh, the idea that by rewarding people for doing things such as learning, we're actually hurting them. So talk about that. What's the argument there and uh, and what are the implications for education? Is well, it similar I mean, to the argument in the corporate sector too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, com- uh, I don't completely buy that argument. Um, I think that you know there are situations where rewards can be pretty effective. Um, I think that in in schools in general, uh, though, he's mostly he's he's largely right. That if you focus a kid, uh, this is true. If let's say paying for grades or paying for standardized test scores, um, I think that is mostly a bad idea. And some of the recent evidence that has come out, although it, to me it hasn't been reported this way. If you look at, I don't know if you've seen this paper by Roland Fryer that came out two months ago. I've seen his earlier work. I haven't seen the latest. He had, he, he did a long he did a study of of um, of four school districts that were using. Rewards for monetary rewards for um, academic achievement. Uh, Chicago, New York, Washington, and Dallas. And in the two most expensive ones, uh, uh, where Chicago and 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 uh, New York, they were paying kids. They said, you know, if you get a, an A or if you do well on a standardized test, you get you know a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars. Um, this paper showed, and Fryer is very, very open and honest about this, even though he's an advocate of these sorts of things. Right. Said flatly, these did not work. There was no effect. Mm. Um, was interesting, and I actually think you know here is where I think that he misinterpreted the results. Uh, he took results. Now, Washington in in Dallas, the the rewards were basically not paying people for outcomes, but paying people for behaviors. Interesting. If, if you come to class, if you <laughs> yeah. turn in your homework. Right. That's that sort of stuff. Uh, not so good. 
Well, no, that actually, well, according to him. That worked better? That worked better. Really? Because, well, and, and, he was gonna, he, and his argument is that people didn't have the capacity or the social capital to figure out how to get an A. So you even, had to... Even uh, if they might have wanted it. Uh-huh. Whereas they know how to show up to school. Yeah. And um, now I take issue with that. And there was also one, and I think the most interesting one, I thought it was very interesting, was the results in Washington... This has been tried here in Washington D.C., as you know, and and the results in Washington that he that he showed, I think, are murky at best. I mean, even you know, before you impose the controls, there was actually a negative correlation between paying and doing these behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, and even he says in the paper that that was his word. His words troubling. There are also problems. So I think that the results in Washington are inconclusive. Um, the one area that I think this is very interesting, the one place where there were very robust results was in Dallas. And what Dallas did is it had this, it had this scheme where it paid um, uh, second graders a dollar for reading a book. Every book you read, you got a dollar. And, and then at the end of the year, there was a clear rise in reading scores. Interesting. Very robust effect. Um, How did they check whether people actually read the book? They, they gave have, them they a quiz at the something. end. Yeah, that makes sense. They had, a, they had a set of books that were sort of a circumscribed but very large universe of books that you were allowed to read, but very large. And all of them came with a kind of computerized quiz yeah. to test whether they actually read the book. Well, see, that's an, I mean, that's, it's kind of grotesque, right? But, 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 but here, here's where I think, well, here's where it's interesting. And I'll let you, you know, you can, you can determine the level of, grotesqueness. Go ahead. Um, but, but I think what was clear about this is that there were results. There was no question about it. I mean, I don't, I, again, I can't remember, you know, what the, what, but it was very clear. It, it, it seemed to work. I think what's interesting about that, in contrast to these other ones, I think there are a few interesting things about it. Number one is that they were paying kids a dollar a book. If I remember right, most kids read maybe 15 books. They paid the kids in a, I think, uh, three times a year, and they paid them with a check. Now, I think that's fascinating in itself because, I mean, I've got a second, these are second graders. I've got a second grader in my house. And, and in fact, I'm surprised that you haven't heard him in this <laughs> conversation. And uh, I don't think my son knows what a check is. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's, you know, that's kind of weird. I, I, he, knows what, he knows what cash is. There's no question about that. Right. But he, I don't think he knows what a check is. And, and so the one area where these contingent rewards, money rewards, cash rewards for performance worked was when in the youngest group of kids, okay, so the rest of them were like high school age kids. These were second graders. The one area where money worked was where, where, where the kids were younger. And, and at least to my mind, the way the money was distributed, the money was less salient. No, that's weird. That's fascinating. And, um, but the results were very strong. And I think what it was is that what the schools did is saying, hey, it's reading year. We're going to read books, and you get a buck. And they kind of gin kids up and made it an exciting, fun thing to do. Yeah, they, there was some hoopla around it for Which sure. you could probably do without the money. And so the one area that unequ- – the one of these four experiments that he talked about, I mean, they were natural. They were, they were field experiments. There were things happening in public school systems in four cities in America. The one area where it produced very strong results was the, was, was the area where it was cheaper, the, the cheapest one by oh, orders of magnitude. Yeah, right, yeah. I mean, this was the, the Dallas thing was like the total cost was something like $50,000, where in, in New York and Chicago, I think the total of those were like $3 million apiece. And 
That, yeah, in one case, it was just a, a teacher. Other, it was an administrator. I mean, it was really expensive. Sorry, and, just, and so, and anyway, so I just so uh, so I'm you know I'm 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 skeptical about that. Now, the one thing where I hold out some possibility is that I think it could be possible that if you take a kid whose life circumstances are so dire, who's had you know so few advantages who begins the world in a position just not similarly situated to your kids or my kids, just sort of behind from the get-go because of the kid's misfortune of having the wrong parents and being born in the wrong neighborhood, that there might be a way that, that, that some of these external things could sort of, you know, kickstart an interest in learning. Yeah, and I, I think that's what's... I think what's and that strikes me as plausible, although I haven't, I haven't, quite, I haven't yet seen it. No, I think that's plausible. I think the let's move away from money for a minute because I think the Alfie Cohn part, and this gets entangled with some of your uh, work on compensation and, and incentives and motivation 2.0 versus other uh, more modern, potentially effective ways. Is they don't even he doesn't even like praise because he argues, you know, I've I've taught for thirty years and I teach college students. But I have kids in my house, uh, four kids, and, and you've seen this, I'm sure, with your kids. A great teacher can motivate kids out of – it's a weird thing just because the kids want to please the teacher, right? But not every teacher. There are other teachers. They, they, they want to please the teacher, but they want to hurt the teacher. <laughs> they're going to show them that they're not going to learn, that they're a lousy teacher, right? So we, no, we understand that – and this is true of adults too, by the way. It's not just for kids. That we want to please other people. We want we want their this is again a Smithian point. We want their respect and their mm. their praise. And what Alfie Cohn argues, I think, and maybe you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it but it is related to some of your work. What Alfie Cohn argues is that any kind of reward, whether it's monetary or whether it's non monetary in the form of praise or points or grades. That's all going to hurt the intrinsic motivation, replace it with extrinsic, and when, the mo- when those rewards disappear, the behavior disappears. And I look at it and I say, well, wait a minute. If I motivate a kid to try reading who's never read before, yeah, sure, they might only be doing it for the money at first, but isn't it possible, as you just said, that they'd learn to like reading even though they're, quote, only doing it for the money initially? Might they not continue reading? It's possible. It really depends on the circumstances. I mean, I think that at some level, I mean, I agree with him in part and I disagree with him in part. If you, if you, if you, if, if you take a, if you take a, um, if, if, I, if I take a, a say a, a nine-year-old kid and say, he's not reading enough, so I'm going to pay him a dollar for every book that he reads, um, as a parent. Okay, forget about it as education policy, as a parent. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give my kid an iPod if he reads... I actually, I actually don't like that at all. No, it I, I think me that, out. I think. Well, I'll tell you why. Because I think um, if you if you give a kid a dollar book to a dollar book to read a book or two dollars a book to read a book, I think that kid is absolutely going to read in the short term. Yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. I think the kid's going to read short books. Yeah, <laughs> I think he, he's he or she is not going to read particularly challenging books, yeah, but I think it'll true. work. I also think what you've done is you said reading is is sort of like working at a fast food restaurant. Uh, it's something that only a chump would do for free. And so I actually think that there's I actually think that he's right in in that regard. But that doesn't mean that that you know any kind of reward from an external source is inherently dehumanizing and that's really his point. 
I mean, he has essentially a philosophical point yeah. that rewards from other people by their very nature dehumanize other people. And I just don't think that's empirically true. And if you look at, let's take, let's take praise, for instance, all right? I think praise is important. Um, I think that the way you praise is really important. And, and if you look at the research of, uh, and this is true, for, I'm going to speak from the perspective of a parent. If you um, look at the research of Carol Dweck, the psychologist now at, at, at Stanford, um, what seems very clear from her research, and, and I've tried to do this as a parent very much, um, in part because um, you know, my parents did the exact opposite, is if you, you praise for effort and strategy and not for innate qualities. And not for results necessarily. Um, not necessarily for results, but not necessarily not for results. Correct. No, no. You yeah. pr- but if a kid tries really hard and doesn't make it, you don't say you're a loser. You better try harder the next time. You say, great effort. Maybe next time you'll do better. What strategy did you use? Yeah. And you know, how can you improve that strategy? So if you look at, you know, so if you look at a kid, um, and I'll speak, I'll speak from, I, I, this is very salient for me because um, I mean, I've got a 13-year-old and 11-year-old, but we've also got, and, and we've got this, uh, this little guy, the seven-year-old, and he has become, um, he is, something clicked in his head about math, that math isn't something you do in school, that math is actually a way to understand the world. Cool. All right? It's very cool. That's a good thing. And, <laughs> and he's proven to be very good at it in, 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 his own, in his own way. And so, but instead of saying to him, um, you know, we were trying to, like, sort of, he likes to do the puzzle. So he's like, you know, give me a math problem. So I'll give him a math problem. And um, instead of saying, if he gets it right, oh, wow, you're so smart. You're so good at math. You say, oh, tell me the strategy you used on that. Well, I counted by tens rather than trying to multiply yeah. it. I said, well, that's a great strategy. That's a really good way to do it. That's awesome the way you, you came up with that way to approach the problem. That is I think that is motivating. I think it's healthy for a kid. Yeah, and no, I agree with that. Um, I think that I think that, uh, and what Carol Dweck's research shows is that you know if you praise a kid, if I were to take my kid right now, who you know at age at age seven, um, you know, and say, "Oh wow, you're so good at math! Wow, you're so good at math! You're such a mathematician." Um, what Carol Dweck's research shows is that the, the kid ends up, human beings can end up having a kind of a, a, a this idea that effort doesn't matter. Of this innate quality yeah. that, that it's that it's all about innate it's, it's all about innate quality and that you either have it or you don't and as a result um, you're less likely to make an effort and and you know in her view and, and I agree with her entirely I mean I think that effort is effort itself is ennobling that effort is a glorious thing in and of itself and so if you praise strategy and effort rather than innate qualities, I think that is not only not harmful, I think it's resolutely positive. And it serves you well down the road. There's no doubt about it. I think the challenge in that setting is the kid who's not so good at math, who, and the, you know, the other mistake we make, say, well, you're just not a math person. I hate that. Right? It's a destructive thing. Of course, sometimes they, they probably shouldn't plan a career in uh, nuclear engineering no. or uh, whatever the uh, high application of mathematics is. But what what I think is is gloriously rewarding for a great math teacher is the ability to take average students and give them a sense of mastery. If you tell them they're bad at math Absolutely. and they have to try really hard, they're not going to get there. But if And you might have to reward them at least with praise. You do have to give them some carrot. Might, again, I, you and I agree that the monetary carrot might 
be very destructive and, and unpleasant. But the the non-monetary carry to praise, I think, is very potentially effective in that setting. If you, you praise, and, if you praise, um, yeah, if you praise effort and and strategy rather than the innate ability, so you don't say, "Wow, correct. that was really good. It's amazing you did that, even though you're so crappy at math." Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't think that's that that's effective. Not, that's but I think so if, you, if you take somebody who is is um, it, you know, maybe even a kid struggling with math and say, okay, try to solve this problem. And they'll say they don't get it right. Well, tell me what you did to, to try to solve it. Okay, that's a pretty good strategy. Now, what if we did it, you know, what if we did it this way? And then actually, I think for that sort of thing, showing kids um, progress is, is really important. So shining a light on the progress, saying, you know, um, uh, you know, remember, Charlie, uh, Five months ago, you had you were really struggling with long division, and now you can do it pretty well. That's good. No, think, Way to go! Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I think, mean, that's uh, it's hard for me to imagine how that could be destructive. Yeah, and I think the where that comes into play, one place that comes into play is, is homework. And again, I don't understand it, but there are a lot of people who argue there shouldn't be homework. Uh, kids should just learn for the intrinsic love of the field. But if they're not good at it, they don't get much fun. It's not play. And you know, I had, I interviewed Daniel Willingham here. We talked about the sweet spot of education, which is if it's if it seems impossible, the kid shuts down. Yeah. If it's really easy, they shut down because that's no right. funny. You, you got to find the it's challenging, but you can do it. Right. Well, I'm not a big fan of homework because it. I think most homework is is inane, um, yeah, it and be. it doesn't hit that sweet <laughs> spot. And so, for some kids, it's too easy, and for some kids, it's too hard, and no one's really learning. Yeah. Um, my daughter had a math teacher. Our middle daughter, Eliza, had a math teacher who came up with something brilliant, which he says he doesn't call. First of all, what he does is he gives kids um, different homework. Okay. Yeah. So you know, my daughter isn't getting the same homework as her classmate Fred or her classmate Maria. Good idea. Uh, if okay. You can do it. That takes a lot of devotion. Exactly. It's hard work. And the other thing that he does is he calls it, he doesn't call it homework, he calls it home learning. Um, that's smart. And I even think that sort of, that semantic move is, 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 is very helpful. But um, I, you know, I think that there is, I don't think there's anything inherently bad about homework per se. I think that most homework, though, is absolutely inane and is done more out of inertia uh, than, any, than a sort of thoughtful way to help kid um, um, you know, build his or her capacities or master a complicated, master a complicated subject. But, you know, I just, I, I, you know, again, as a, uh, if, uh, this, I, this idea of going back to this, if, if homework is a way to help kids practice and exert effort and see a connection between effort and outcome, I think that's a glorious thing. But I think most homework is not that way. Yeah, um, I'm afraid you're probably right. Well, we're almost, we're out of time, but, uh, I want to give you one more chance to come back and talk about more back to the book. Um, talk about where you've done a lot of interesting work on the workplace, um, and this is just another piece in it. Here you're talking about compensation. In your previous books, you looked at the mix of self-employment versus uh, corporate top-down employment. Mm-hmm. In your other book in between there, you looked at um, – Right brain versus left brain, and the increasing use of creativity. So there's a there's a a nice story to tell there. Of in all three all three of those books kind of work together. So why don't you sum up where you sort of see the U.S. workplace going in in all three of those modes? Well, I mean, I, I think that there 
there, there, there are a lot of things going on, and that, and that I think that the nature of work, both particularly what people do and how they do it, is in its own way becoming more human. Um, I think that people um, are looking to their work as a source of meaning, as a source of inherent satisfaction, and I think work is increasingly calling on higher-level skills, and I think that's a good thing. This is why I, I, I express some skepticism over people thinking of, you know, people working long hours as a bad thing. Um, it, you know, I think there are many people who work long hours because they like to work and they like what they're doing. And so this idea that work is somehow inherently a kind of disutility uh, is, is mistaken. And there's, I just saw some new research today that shows um, how much happier people are it, when they're active rather than when they're idle even though we tend to think that being idle, not having to do anything, being completely free with any kind of obligation is the ideal state. In fact, actually being active and engaged and, and involved in something is, is, are the sources of highest human experience. So I think the work is becoming uh, ever, more, uh, ever more human. And I think that the yearning to do something that matters and to do it in a way that is self-directed is a deep part of what it is to be human. My one concern is that the nature of organizations are often incompatible for that incompatible with that. And I think some organizations are changing, but I think it's very slow. And just to make one more, you know, one more point here about sort of the deep human yearnings that people have, and I think it's connected, it connects the dots in some ways between this first book, Free Agent Nation, and this latest book, Drive. In that book, Free Agent Nation, uh, which is about the rise of people working for themselves, and I'm happy to say that it, the book remains in print um, it sells tens of copies every year. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> but the phenomenon remains uh, the, well, important. What was interesting is that, is that to research that book, I traveled around the United States and I did these long interviews with people uh, who had left large organizations or been pushed out of large organizations to go work for themselves. And one word that people kept using, which I thought was fascinating, was they kept saying to me, Dan, I felt like I wasn't making a contribution. And... It really goes to your point, Russ, about the person turning the crank and seeing that there's nothing at the end of the crank. And I think that's inherently alienating. And I think people are willing to work hard and expend effort and, and do good things, but they have to see some outcome in what they do. It has to contribute. I think there's an existential um, desire for what you do to actually have some kind of impact on the world. And um, I think that's a big piece that's missing in a lot of workplaces. And the more that workplaces become in some ways more human, that is, they recognize that people have these mix of drives. They want to contribute. They want to get better at stuff. They want to be have some measure of control over their lives. I, I think it's better for business and it's better for human beings. And um, and the sort of the promise of this humanistic world of, of business, um, which we've sort of been held out there for a long time, I think is a little bit closer to realization than it was before. My guest today has been Daniel Pink. Dan, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. My pleasure, as always. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.